shot shame, hunger, widows, old boy. The rhythm section. Rhythm section. So he's really established. And then we have this director that's only directed one other feature. That's intentional. I've seen that a lot, actually, where yeah. even in Hollywood, they pair new directors with really experienced cinematographers because they're going to make sure the movie gets done. Oh. And they're going to make yeah. sure the shots make sense and that the story is being told. Hello everyone, my name is Kenneth Jackson and welcome back to Cinevibes. I'm of course joined here by my esteemed co-host and good friend Trey Riley. What's up? And today we're going to be looking at a film that was highly, highly anticipated in the awards season that passed and for good reason as well as we'll get into in this episode. A lot of nominations and some wins that were well deserved. Today we're looking at Judas and the Black Messiah. But before we hop into the movie review, Trey, what have you been watching this week? So glad you asked, because I have two films that I can't wait to rave about. Ah, nice. As you know, in recent episodes, I've been throwing it back to a simpler time. (laughs) And watching rom-coms from days past. Ah. Ah, I remember you were going back. And I watched a lovely little film that Gavin, who we have on for movie drafts, had recommended. Mm -hmm. One of his favorites, actually. Okay. And that's Notting Hill. Mm Mm-hmm. Notting Hill. 1995 film with the charming Hugh Grant. Mm Mm-hmm. And Julia Roberts. Julia Roberts. You know, during their heyday, their prime, I would say, Mm -hmm. the early mid-90s through the 2000s. Just yeah, great film. It's highly British. And highly British. It's in Notting Hill. I don't actually know exactly where that is geographically, yeah. but I think it's a little uh, nook, kind of like maybe Belmont or something like that would be to Charlotte. Okay, yeah. So, yeah. Sounds very British. It's interesting at... It does a lot of things that you expect it to do. I'm not going to try and say that it isn't like that, but I think it just makes you laugh at the awkwardness. Maybe right. something at the time that was more new. I feel like nowadays awkward movies are really common. Like, let's make it really awkward yeah. because that's how people are. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of times Matthew McConaughey rom coms whatever those are like real smooth and suave bradley yeah. cooper steps in like he's got yeah you know, got it taken care of mm-hmm. this one he's like a babbling idiot for most of it <laughs> and it's hilarious and then ends up being sweet that's great but yeah notting hill you guys should check it, out. It check it out it is on prime i believe to watch free mm-hmm. okay and another one speaking of awkward movies Together, together. 
Together, together. It's a 2021 film that is currently in theaters, and I'm back in the theaters and excited. Got the vaccines Woo! out there and about, you know, getting back to normal. Nice. Together, together has Ed Helms and someone I haven't heard of, Patty Harrison. Ed Helms, we're all familiar with from the Hangover movies and plenty of other things since then. Mm-hmm. Patty Harrison, relatively new, at least to me. And essentially, it takes the story of, I guess you see this more in other films, of a woman wanting to have a child separate from a man or a spouse or anything mm. by using a surrogate. Okay. But this is that same type of story, but the guy, Ed Harris's character, wants to have a child with a surrogate. Mm-hmm. And, man, the awkward moments are flying high <laughs> in that one. And it's hilarious. If I mean, you guys know. It's just, this story was built for him. I wouldn't, I bet they went to him first and that was the only guy they wanted because... It exudes his presence, and honestly, it gets really sentimental, and mm-hmm. I don't know, it got me. Like, mm-hmm. I was really captivated by the story and thought the way they presented it, and I'm not going to spoil it, but the ending is not expected right? in the sense okay. that there is a lot left to think about and so i'll leave it at that so yeah together together you guys should check it out if you're together yeah out and about in the theaters recommend that ken yeah what's up are you watching oh (laughs) you thought i was gonna just uh... like hit you with something else but i'm just curious I know. I, I thought you were going to ask who won the 1998 Olympics, uh, but <laughs> man. <laughs> if you know that off the top of your head, might I mean, as well throw it out there. I mean, I wasn't. That's why I wasn't prepared for it, but. It's like, I oh, was it Beijing or Chile <laughs> or where? It was, it was somewhere over uh, to the West, I believe. But no, no, yeah, thank you for asking me about the films that I watched. Well, I'm not going to bore you with the amount that I watched, but I made a new resolution with myself to where I watch a film. If I can't watch it one a day, it's going to be one every other day. So Dang. we've had about nine days, I think, since recording. It's been a, it's been a bit, but... I've watched nine films. Wow. I've watched nine films. Most of them were on the Criterion channel, so I was easily able to delve back. So I had some older ones, just to name off a few. Crossfire, which had one of my favorite, uh, is one of my favorite actors from that time, Robert Mitchum. Mm. Really fantastic actor. It was in 1944, somewhere in that area uh, film. And it was a neo-noir, not neo-noir. This is back in the heyday of noir. So this is back in that gritty crime investigations. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I love it. Uh, Another old film was The Divorce of Lady X with Laurence Olivier. And, uh, you know, I wanted to see a little bit more about Larry. Uh, A lot of people rave about how he was one of the most one of the best actors of the 20th century. And honestly, I can see why, but more 
recent films that I've watched. I've been wanting to get to this one for a long time. It's At Eternity's Gate with mm. Willem Dafoe. Yep. And Oscar Isaac. And man, this film, let me tell you, this is a very disorienting film. <laughs> so you might want to make sure you're at your uh, peak performance when you watch this film because if you're any what under the influence, you're you're gonna feel like you're having a the trip of your lifetime, brother. Wow. And honestly, I think it did so well because the the cinematography in this film and then the sound, it just it puts you right into the headspace of somebody like Vincent Van Gogh. Yeah. It puts you right into that mind frame of a mind that is tearing itself apart and you can't tell up from down sometimes in this film. And you can't tell what is present and what is not present. What happened and what is happening and what will happen. And man, this film, I can't say, I I can't praise it enough. It's just fantastic. Really good film. And then also the last one I'll mention is Collateral. Yes. Watched Collateral Michael Mann. I we this was part of the uh Cinevibes movie draft in two thousand four, I believe. Yep. You guys will hear that in the coming weeks. This film I wanted to watch it because Michael Mann, he's somewhat known for neo noir films and uh, I wanted to see what this film was about. I mean, it has Jamie Foxx and Tom Cruise in it. So, How it's about a pretty Tom Cruise, man. Oh, yeah, Tom Cruise was fantastic in this film. He doesn't get enough credit and a role like that is mm-hmm. one where I'm like throw the credit at him. Yeah, cuz he played a very at the beginning you thought he was not as torn between his job and his feelings so you just felt he was a emotionless psychopath but you know he he had moments in there that were very thoughtful yeah you know very contemplative sometimes just and, that dynamic between those two man mm-hmm. we gotta review this one i feel like collateral yes Definitely. And there's one more that I'll leave off. Uh, well, that I will say last that I watched is Fire Will Come. Okay. 2019 film that was, it's a Spanish film. And Criterion? Criterion Channel. So go check it out on Criterion. But it's about a man who comes back from prison after being sentenced for arsony in his hometown in Spain. And it's a hillside, mountainside village. Mm. I can't remember exactly where it takes place, but he comes back to this village and is just living his life. And I, this film is, you know, we talked about it with Nomadland. It's like watching poetry. And this film, I think, is no different at all. It wow. is as if you're watching poetry with this film because it has a lot of nature shots. And as an actor, I love to sit there and watch people interact with the world around them because there's sort, there's tiny quirks you can pick up. You know, we humans all share a lot of traits, uh, but culturally you can see minor bits of habits that they have. That is just so interesting to me. Like Mm -hmm. the way this man takes the lid off of a stove 
to cook is just and, and they emphasize that in this as well. And it's like the minute details. So it's definitely like watching poetry. Uh, it's very artistic. So go watch it on the Criterion channel if you can. Beautiful. Those were the films that I watched. I watched a few others, but I'm not going to sit here and list <laughs> them off in my uh, lengthy verse. I feel like you need a little blog or something now where people can keep up with your movie watching with how many yeah, you're going to be watch. doing. Yep, I'll end up sharing my letterbox. Yeah, hey, maybe on the story. Let us, let us yeah, know if you guys want us to leave recommendations. But today... What are we reviewing today? Well, today, Trey, I don't know if you've heard, but today we're going to be reviewing a little movie called Judas and the Black Messiah. Oh my gosh. Yes, yes, that one. This film... We're going to get into it a little bit deeper, but I think me and Trey are both huge fans of this film. Yeah. And I now understand the dynamics of the two supporting actors being nominated for Oscars, which at the time I was running off of Ken's frustration and yes. I've got it uh, locked down now. So <laughs> You see where I'm coming from now, right? Yeah. Man. But yeah, with that being said, I I feel like you were the one that you, you just saw it just recently. So let me get your hot take off of it, like fresh, fresh off of seeing it. What is your take on the film right off the bat? My hot take, which is the hottest take out there because I just watched this within the past two days mm -hmm. of recording this, is that... I expected to be more emotionally moved by it. Mm -hmm. But the way it was presented was very fact-based and yeah. kind of emotionless, if that even makes right. sense. Mm -hmm. And it didn't linger with any moments too long that would right. allow you to let the emotions roll in. The music never... Honestly, the music kept you out of emotion mm -hmm. it felt yeah. very harsh and loud and kind of off kilter it didn't really keep a rhythm which we can talk about more but all that to say i still loved it because mm -hmm. it was very different and i think it does something for a story that at least myself and my upbringing and my background I never knew about Fred Hampton or about William O'Neill or this particular story. Mm -hmm. I, I've heard of the Black Panthers, of course, but didn't know about kind of their widespread reach and what they were trying to do specifically until I watched this movie. And I think it's important that people see it because, I mean, this is the battle we're still facing today. Yeah. And... Perhaps, unfortunately, we'll still be facing 20 years from now. But I think it's an important movie. I think it's well acted. I think it's beautifully shot. The lighting, I want to talk about some because it really captured me. There's a few scenes where I can point out just you know top-notch content type of mm -hmm. blocking. And so, yeah, my hot take is it's very different. I... Mm -hmm despite not being as emotionally 
caught up in it in terms of you know, move to tears and things like that, which I was expecting, like a Just mm-hmm. Mercy type of movie where I was a puddle most of it. Yeah. I still thoroughly was impressed and enjoyed what was put in front of me and would have to certainly recommend it. And Yeah. Yeah. So having now been out of it a little while, do your initial thoughts still hold up? Or has anything changed? I think they do. I think that my thoughts on this film is that, much like you said, it's a film that is very informative to somebody who did not grow up with the Black Panthers being a huge influence on my day-to-day life. Right. Uh, But understanding the importance that it played during a very pivotal time in history is really good. And I'm glad that it was brought up when it was because I think it has a lot of parallels with what's going on today. Like you said, I think this is something, you know, it's not something that will be squashed just from saying, oh, everything's fine now, you know. So I think we're still going to be dealing with some of this stuff. But to see this film portray such a I I don't think chaotic is the best word but such a it's such a hotbed of emotions uh, between people being fed up with being treated a certain way and others just not wanting to concede their way of thinking Mm -hmm. and so I think this film does a fantastic job of that and I think that you know Uh, To go off of the hot take that you had said earlier, I think I do agree that this film did seem a bit clinical at times in how it dealt with some of its subject. I think also it kind of, you know, I think it did a good job with the script it had, but I, I, I feel like I had a disconnect between two different stories because you had the story of, Lakeith Stanfield playing Bill O'Neill and then also Fred Hampton. And so it's hard to tell who exactly, you know, it it, it kind of tears itself between those two different worlds. I think a little, little too much. But other than that, this film, I think cinematography wise and directing wise, it was a really good film. Before we continue with the movie review, here's what's going on in the news this week. Principal Photography has finally wrapped on Inside, a film by Greek producers Heretic. This is the producer's first English language film and stars Willem Dafoe playing Nemo, a high-end art thief who is trapped in his apartment in New York Times Square after his heist does not go as planned and now he must use all that he can to survive months of being alone inside. A Quiet Place 2 continues to soar at the box office as rave reviews continue to come in about the film and its continuation of the story from A Quiet Place 1. So if you haven't checked it out yet, Go check it out. Me and Trey, we've watched it and we got a lot to talk about and that will be in a future episode. But let's get back to Judas and the Black Messiah. For Shaka King's second feature outing, from what I can tell, it looks like he's done some TV work. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know what his first movie was about, but I'm assuming Weed from Newly Weeds, yes. The title. So quite a different second outing for him and yeah, I'm assuming it was very personal and he had a lot of connection to the subject matter and because of that I think it translates to a really well executed project. And mm-hmm. I think just starting out talking about that split that you mentioned, that's a good point that, and this is why the debate came up about the supporting actors. If we want to touch on that again, mm-hmm. they were both, Keith and Daniel Kaluuya were both nominated for supporting actor. And arguably Lakeith should have been perhaps nominated as a lead or even the other uh, Daniel could have been if you there's probably an argument for that as well. Yeah. But because of that, we're almost, I don't know, maybe 60-40 in terms of 60% seeing Bill O'Neill's character and 40 on Fred Hampton. Mm-hmm. And both of them are conflicted about what they're doing. I mean, it's in the title. Anyone that's familiar yeah. with biblical references, Judas betrays Jesus. And... Mm-hmm. You know, the Black Messiah, at least in the eyes of the Black Panther Party, and a lot of people, was Fred Hampton. A young guy, 21 years old, doing something revolutionary. And we all know how that ends up going because history likes to repeat itself. And, of course, they try and shut down revolutionaries. Yeah. Anyways, because of that, we're torn between who do we want to sympathize or empathize with and I think that leads back to my some of my initial thoughts is perhaps neither in some regard because we're just being presented information it's like Mm -hmm. we need to know this so that we can be better informed in the future it's not trying to make you empathize with Fred Hampton and the struggle that he dealt with and all the undermining that was happening in the Chicago area. And it's not to empathize with Bill O'Neill, who was cornered essentially to have to do this or be perhaps killed himself because of his past and the things that he was dealing with. And so, I don't know. It's a mixed bag. And I think there's still debate today about kind of what did Bill O'Neill actually do and was he actually affiliated or not? And I think that's really interesting. Yeah. I think that Bill's character to me was, or Lakeith Stanfield, the way it was portrayed was, in my opinion, you know, to touch on the, you know, co- the supporting actor versus the lead. I honestly would say Daniel Kaluuya would be the one that I would... What Honestly, objectively, it's Lakeith Stanfield. Because the story centers around Bill O'Neill and his involvement with the Black Panther Party uh, in Chicago with Fred Hampton. Right. Uh, but it centers around his action, like you're talking about. 
the black Judas and the black Messiah. Judas betrayed Jesus. And so this film is about his betrayal of Fred Hampton. So I think objectively it would be Bill O'Neill as the lead, uh, Lakeith as the lead. And then Fred Hampton would be the supporting because it was more focused on the action of betraying uh, Fred Hampton than it was um, about Fred Hampton, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And I think the strongest performance out of the two, it's got to be Daniel Kaluuya. Because to me, he was extremely powerful in this role. He exuded that confidence that Fred Hampton was known for and his eloquency of speaking to the public. And I think the amount of work that went into Fred Hampton that Daniel Kaluuya did, that was insane. Yeah, Just the amount that he did for this role. Uh, And then Lakeith Stanfield, I think he did a fantastic job, but it felt a lot like Lakeith to me. It felt, and and that's not a bad thing because he does fantastic with what he does, but it wasn't as huge of a role as Fred Hampton's or uh, Daniel Kaluuya. Yeah, the only times I was like, oh, that's pretty dynamic acting with Lakeith was when he would be really like fired up in the uh, committee house. Yeah. And then he would run outside and then start laughing and stuff as he was backing up out of the driveway. And it's mm-hmm. like, oh, wow, that's. And I think some of those shots were like continuous and it was really such a flip. And like, I think it was important to the story to show how he was playing the sides, not just by being an informant for the FBI, but emotionally, like, really putting on a front in front of them and then immediately dropping it. And I agree with you completely in the sense that Daniel Kaluuya was completely transformed into this character more so than any other person that was in the film. And just, I mean, when you hear him talk, you know, he's very British and very not like this. I mean, not like in terms of his speaking and everything it's just a real transformation mm-hmm. and i thought it was great i thought he really demanded your attention on the screen and so for that reason yeah i could see the argument that way as well if you're not just looking at objective like time on screen who's the center of the story and so on but mm-hmm yeah, the whole cast, if you, we just want to talk about that for a moment. Oh, yeah, because I definitely want to talk about Jesse Plemons. Yeah, Jesse Plemons, which I'll let you talk about. I know you have a lot to say there, but even little bit roles like Lil Rel Hauer, mm-hmm. he like was on the screen for maybe three minutes. Yeah. And I was like, oh, shoot, like he's important. His role mm-hmm. is notable and... How dare he do what he did? But we'll yeah. let you watch the movie to know what he did. And then even you got Martin Sheen playing J. Edgar Hoover, who was the J. 
director of the FBI at the time. And just despicable. Like, Mm -hmm. what a terrible human being in a way. Like, it wasn't about justice for him. I don't know, obviously, his real account of his life or what he would say about his life, but it was never about justice. It was about suppressing black people. Mm -hmm. And it really comes across in this portrayal and how they organize their their own people against them. They pin them down for crimes and use them as pawns in this scheme to infiltrate and destroy the Black Panther Party. Yeah. And it's disgusting. It it I mean that's part of seeing these actors do so well in these roles. There's at least three people we see that are black and they're informants and they're working the other side and they don't even know who each other are. So mm-hmm. it's got this whole new dynamic and it gets really trippy in there for a minute and you're like, I don't, I don't know who's who. And yeah. even we'll jump to Jesse Plemons. He gets disoriented with it. Yeah. Yeah. Jesse, I think he did really good in this film i i liked the way he acted and you know i this is honestly the first film that i've seen jesse in but i know he's got a lot of films coming up and i know he's had a lot of films that people know him from uh whether it be uh, the irishman or actually a film that i'm wanting to check out because i just came onto my radar but it is Bridge of Spies with Steven Spielberg. Oh, yeah. Which I want to check that out. Um, but I think he did a fantastic job in this film being very manipulative. Yeah. Extremely manipulative. Because you want to be like, oh, you know, he's a cool guy. He He's really someone I would trust and mm-hmm. feel like he's looking out for the best for me. Uh, but when you realize what he's doing in the film, then no, I would not want to know this guy. I would actually never want to speak to him ever. Right. Uh, And I think, yeah, there are moments in there where he does kind of have this torn uh, feeling between what he's doing and how he feels about it. Because I think that's revealed in some scenes, but you know, to go through with it and just follow your orders for something like this to dismantle or attempt to dismantle a whole movement based off of wishing for social equality is absolutely despicable. But I think he does a really good job portraying that. That's why I liked his uh, acting in this. Yeah. He feels genuine until... He's stabbing you in the back. Yeah. And, and then threatens you and threatens you to, you know, hey, if you don't do it, I'll uh, I'll tell them about the car you stole. Right. Yeah. You know what happened to the last informant they found, right? You wouldn't mm-hmm. want that, would you? It's like this guy. And then, you know, I think a little bit of that threat is empty. Because we then see how seemingly torn he is when 
the FBI director takes it to another level and he's like, oh, are we really doing that? Like, that's that's illegal, right? So I think some, there's like some baby amount of humanity in there that like sneaks out. Yes. But then he's still, and this is with every character and I think that's something that's interesting about this movie is that everyone is being played against themselves. Yeah. Even Jesse Plemons' character, who is a part of the FBI, he's getting, if he doesn't follow orders, what's going to happen to him? You know, it just trickles down all the way through. And that's happening, you know, that's happening today. Yeah. It's sickening. It doesn't, it's not just, you know, obviously the FBI, it's, all over and using people against themselves or situations that they messed up in or are caught up in against them. Yeah. It's terrible. It's like, yeah, that's how you have to get someone. That's how you have to make your point. I don't know. I digress, but yeah, the film really hits that home which is what I think is the point of it is that deception is rampant and it was then it is now and it will continue to be yeah and just keep your eyes open and if you believe in something go after it there's like some weird kind of optimism laced in there which you kind of walk away with as well, despite how everything plays out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that the story of this film and the fact that you can't trust anybody uh, because you're following a character that cannot be trusted himself. Yeah. You can't, you can't fully trust Bill O'Neill and getting that close to Fred Hampton and being able to be alone, one-on-one with this guy, and be his security detail, like the head of his security. The head of his security wanted to kill him, or at right. least like gain information on him. And then it came to, oh, hey, by the way, you know, it turned real. And it does go to show you that in these cases, you can't fully trust everybody. You know, I think some of the biggest figures in any political movement have at one point in the last three to four months of their lives said the words, I think I'm being followed. I think someone's watching me. I think there's a spy among us. And everyone's just like, oh, no, they're they're crazy. They're insane. Nothing's going to happen. And then something like this happens where someone does stab them in the back. And I think the directing does a really good job of that and showing Lakeith's feelings towards it as well, how torn he is about having to do such a thing, because I don't think this is something that, you know, he signed up for it for money. It was not it was not a plea against the Black Panther Party. It was not because he had some animosity towards towards them, but rather. It was a financial reason. Yeah, to get his name cleaned as well from the charge he had against him. 
Yeah. And to see the parallels between that and Jesus and Judas back in the day, you know, how Judas sold Jesus out for money. I think there's a lot of parallels that play off of it. And I think what you said earlier about how stories repeat themselves is very true. Yeah. Is that history does repeat itself regardless. And we always question why somebody would do something. You know, if you were to ask somebody, if you were in Judas's shoes back in the day, would you do the same thing? Everyone's like, no, 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 never. No, never in a million years. I'm sure if you asked Bill, Bill O'Neill after the fact of what he did, would he go back and do it again? He'd be like, no, never. I'd never do it again. Because he's like, there's no amount. People would say there's no amount of money that would let me do something like that. But when you're in the heat of the moment, it's much like, you know, you walking down the street and seeing somebody else. And it's just another person. You don't see them as these big figureheads like Fred Hampton or Jesus. But you see them as people that are capable of being sold out and your financial gains are the biggest driver of your motivations, of your actions. Yeah, for sure. And, I mean, I think we've pushed this point to the limits in the sense of how the story is portrayed, but I think to talk about it a little bit more technically for a moment, I just want to talk about the music. Yeah. Like, when they're riding in the car, there's several different times where we're just riding in the car with them and they're kind of just driving around, going from place to place. Mm-hmm. And you get that, not even fully sure what the instrument is, but it like starts playing and then immediately abruptly stops. Yeah. And then it keeps doing that. And it isn't even in any sort of rhythm it just makes you feel kind of like your skin starts crawling. Like, yeah, this guy is just right underneath Fred Hampton's nose, like waiting to strike, trying to pull information, trying to sell him out. And I've never heard music like that. A score, yeah. when you think about a score, it's often very smooth unless maybe it's an action movie or in a Nolan project. But, to have a really beautiful instrument feel so ugly yeah, was very interesting to me and really caught my attention immediately. I was like, whoa, mm-hmm. like, this is different. Yeah. And I think it really helps elevate the story and really drive home the whole through line of what's unfolding and what we mm-hmm. don't yet know is going to happen. I mean, obviously, we know history, so we know what happens, but... In terms of the movie, we're just getting buckled in because mm-hmm. there's a lot more that's going to unfold. And I think it's done really well. Yeah. I love it whenever directors and their composers really key in on certain aspects of the film to help show, uh, or not show, but to help the f- viewer feel an, a certain emotion. Because there's some images that, you know, you can attempt to show someone a feeling from a certain image, but there is something that music does that hits our primal nature and makes us throw on a lot of like caution signs. And there's a lot of red flags that go up. Yeah. And whenever 
stuff like that does happen, I think it's amazing because it's using another element of what makes film so great. So yeah, like you're talking about that instrument, like showing some form of a disorientation and something is just not right here. Using that through sound, I think is fantastic. And I've started finding more and more examples in films that I watch now and how that does happen rather than saying a line of dialogue or an extra shot, but rather using that music along with the visuals to tell a certain thing. I think it's something that is very, very, it takes time and it takes a lot of know-how of a film to direct such a moment. But once it's pulled off, I think it's phenomenal. Yeah. From a technical standpoint, like as a writer, you instinctually want to tell people. You want them to say the dialogue. This is what's happening. You want to show them what's happening, maybe secondly. But it's kind of a risk to jump out on a ledge and just let music carry an image Mm -hmm. with no dialogue. And you need to really know what you're doing and be fully invested in that decision because if you don't, then you you miss the impact that it's going to have. Yeah. And so obviously these writers knew that they wanted to let the music, let the quiet moments, let the moments without dialogue really kind of carry their own weight. And despite how much speaking is done in the movie, very powerful speeches and things like that, some of the most powerful times are in the quiet moments or when the music's elevated and there's just a montage of shots going on in the background. Mm-hmm. And that's a intentional storytelling choice, uh, editing choice, a composition choice. And kudos back to the director for pulling all that together and really knowing how to use those well because you know it can become gimmicky it can fall apart and get confusing if you're not telling enough and there's that balance and i think it's really balanced in that way yeah let's hop over to cinematography i think this film does a really good job of putting you in the headspace of where these characters are and I think there are some really key points when especially with Lakeith's scenes where it shows that sort of conflict he has inside of him about what he's doing and the disorientation especially in the last few scenes with Lakeith shows his level of anxiety and fear of what he's doing and his guilt in what he's doing. I think it really becomes apparent in the final bit, but every, like some of the other shots, like you mentioned earlier, the car backing up scene. I love shots like that where it's stationary, but there's motion in the background. Mm -hmm. Those are always some of my favorite shots Yeah, uh, because when done right, like it was in that scene, it can just be so mesmerizing. <laughs> yeah, you don't really know what to think. I mean, maybe subliminally, you're just registering, oh, a car's backing up. Mm-hmm. But like 
there's tons of chaos in the foreground. It's just clean and neat right in front in the for in the sorry in the background it's really chaotic and then the foreground it's really just locked off and calm and then you've got action in between which is the actor and I honestly would not think to shoot that that way so yeah. I'd be curious let's just call up the director and get him on here and ask him why I decided to make that choice because yeah there's a lot of moments like that where it's like that's really interesting because you know there there's times in there where you've got Jesse Plemons, the FBI agent, talking down to Lakeith, and they're shooting it as such, which that's kind of cinematography, storytelling 101 with the camera. Yeah. Someone in power, shoot up towards them. The person that's being repressed, shoot down at them. So you've got all of that, and that plays well. But then you have shots like you mentioned that they're just unique. They mm-hmm. don't follow a rule. There's no rule that says shoot a car backing up, mounted on the trunk. It's just like, yeah. how do you get to that point? I'm very curious what the director, because you know every single shot in here, he's got an explanation for why it's like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it'd be fascinating to really break down something like that with any cinematographer, but specifically or cinematographer or director and go through that, especially for this movie. Yeah. I think that's something that not many people, and this is kind of a tangent outside of the film, but I think that's something many people who are not familiar with the film industry and even those that are new, because I'm still learning more and more about roles and such. But I think a lot of people just assume if a shot is in a film, it was set there by the director. But I've been on sets where director would have an idea, and although they'd like to do something with the camera, the cinematographer is like, no, we're going to do it this way. Yeah. And, you know, there is that power play between director and their cinematographer and or DP. And to have that independence between who is operating the camera and who is directing you know i think that as the closer i get to directing a short it makes me think you know okay well as the director i'll I'll just say i want a certain emotion and then the cinematographer will be like all right cool got you bet or they might be like is there any more technical things you want to see right so I think I think with a shot like that, you know, to know between, you know, Shaka and Sean, what their thoughts were behind that, placing the camera when they did. And also at moments when Lakeith was going through his toughest times, why they chose to shoot the scenes like they did and where the mentality and how they did it, even if it was practical you know in camera stuff rather than post which i think a lot more people are trying to do is post production shots so it's it's always fun to see that looks practical stuff but yeah i i think that would be a really interesting conversation about these shots Um, i think you mentioned something i just want to touch on for a moment with mm -hmm. cinematographer and director and i've seen this a lot i didn't know this at the time who the DP was, but I just looked and 
you mentioned that it's Sean Bobbitt, mm-hmm. who is, you know, pretty established. Like, you know his films. Yeah. He's, he's 12 Years well a Slave, known. Shot Shame, Hunger, Widows, Old Boy. The rhythm Section. Rhythm Section. So he's really established. And then we have this director that's only directed one other feature. That's mm-hmm. intentional. I've seen that a lot, actually, where... Yeah. Even in Hollywood, they pair new directors with really experienced cinematographers because they're going to make sure the movie gets done oh, and they're going to make yeah. sure the shots make sense and that the story is being told. And I don't think, unless you listen to Roger Deakins' podcast, I don't think a lot of people are talking about that because I've heard it come up on there multiple times where the DP in any sort of situations working with an inexperienced director and kind of helping pull them along for the ride. And I think that just shows the power of that position and how important it is to make sure there's chemistry there. Cause could you imagine not getting along and then you're getting pulled along too? Like what a miserable experience that would be. Yeah. But yeah, I just thought that was interesting. I didn't know that. And then I looked and lo and behold, proves the point again. Yeah. Awesome. I think it's getting close to that glorious time where we give our lasting impressions, our thoughts to our beloved fans. Yes. And then throw that rating out there. Man. All right. I think that this film, it was very poignant. I think this film did a really good job showing an aspect that I'd never seen before. And I think it's something that needs to continue to happen because there are many aspects of society that I will never know of. I will never understand fully just because of how I was raised, where I was raised. I It, it all differs. And I think this is the type of film that shows you these areas where I would have no idea what was going on. Because for most of the time when I was growing up and I heard the Black Panther Party, I'm just going to be 100% honest, I always thought that they were not the best. Right, like extremists or something. Always heard that they were just radicalists that just were, you know, always armed, which in this film they are, and you know, kind of gun-worshipping anarchists almost. But I think this film did a really good job showing the emotional drive behind such leaders like Fred Hampton and, you know, what drove them to be who they were and all the things that they did, like that breakfast program he did that was shown in the film and them getting him on a charge of like $78 worth of ice cream. That was infuriating. Uh, by the way. Yeah. $78 of ice cream and putting him in prison. And then all of the turmoil that he goes through and the still conviction he has to try and help get people out of poverty and feed people that need to be fed because society has turned their back on them. I think this film is very well done. I think as a biography, it does a really good job showing who Fred Hampton was as well as Bill O'Neill and his his coming to terms and grips with what he's doing. So with all that being said, 
I would give this film. Is torn. I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. 8 out of 10. Trusty 8. 8 out of 10. Yes. I And that score doesn't come out of any other place other than this is a heavy film to sit down and watch. Right. I don't think I would sit down and watch it uh, every single time it came on. Not out of, you know, I would watch it for the amazing performances and also the really good storyline. But it just is a film very, very pointed uh, for a specific It's not a casual Saturday watch. It's not not your, hey, what's on TV today? Oh, uh, (laughs) it's in the Black Messiah. Okay, let me grab the popcorn. I mean, I think this film can be that for people, but for me, it's not. Right. Uh, But I think that for a film where Shaka King, it's his second directorial outing and... You know, for the huge performances, Daniel Kaluuya, Lakeith Stanfield, Jesse Plemons, and even, you know, of course, Dominique Fishback Mm -hmm. and everyone else in this film, they did a fantastic job. I just, it's not my type of film, I would say. I would watch it again, but it's not one that I would just flick on to have a good time. I'm sitting here to think. (laughs) Yeah, I... I feel like we share a lot of the same sentiments about this movie, perhaps because we were raised fairly similar in the same type of region, probably a lot of the same upbringing. And, you know, reiterating all that you said, I had a lot of those same thoughts about the Black Panther Party and what they represented just out of ignorance, to be honest. I didn't know what I didn't know. And to be informed the way that this movie did, you know, something like that in terms of educational value and eye-opening value, like 10 out of 10. Like that category, and I know you would agree with that. Yeah. But again, to your points there, and what I mentioned initially in my hot take was I was pulled out of it because of the informative nature of it. And I didn't really get to connect or kind of fall into the characters the way I expected and wanted to. And that's because of the structure and it was intentional. And mm-hmm. they split the time and you lose something when you split the time. Unless you have a four-hour movie and then no one's going to watch it. So, you know. You got to pick and choose your battles, and I think they made exactly what they wanted. It just lost a little something for me, and I actually changed my score a few times back and forth on this one. But Mm. despite having a 96 certified fresh Rotten Tomatoes score, (laughs) I've got to give it a 7 out of 10. Okay. As an overall thought, and for me... That's what it is. I realize there's 10 out of 10 categories all throughout this movie. I I mean, it's now available to rent. So anyone that's Mm -hmm. listening to this can grab it for $6, I think. And I think it's well Mm. worth the watch for at least one time. Because maybe you're like us and didn't quite know what it was all about. And 
at a minimum, it makes you want to do your research. Yeah, definitely. Go give this film a watch. Rent it. Show some love to this amazing film and these these producers. And let us know what you think. Send us an email at cinevibescast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your hot takes and how much you love Lucky the Stanfield as much as we did, as well as Daniel Kubia. <laughs> and also follow us at the Cinevibes on Instagram. We're going to be posting more content over there based on our interviews and also the films that we watch. Uh, we're also going to be toying around with the idea like we were talking about at the beginning if you'd love to see a lot more film reviews outside of our normal lengthy hour-long reviews we can give short snippets and possibly even have a cinevibes account where we review films and share our reviews on instagram in stories and other such for you to go check out and you can follow us uh on that as well so things in the work but yeah, thank you so much for sitting here and listening to the podcast with us. Hopefully you enjoyed Judas and the Black Messiah as much as we did. Yeah, and if you did enjoy it as much as we did, then obviously you should follow us. You should subscribe. You should share oh, it. Yeah. Maybe yeah. this episode just completely moved you and your mind mm-hmm. was opened and your, your horizons broadened. Then just share it. Share it with your bus driver i don't know Mm -hmm. share it with the mailman the mailman we would be so delighted and so thankful for that and of course you can listen anywhere that you listen to podcasts spotify apple podcast stitcher soundcloud all that avenues so jump over there listen to some of the other episodes and if you like what we're doing and the direction we're headed subscribe oh yeah just just hit that follow button. That's all we want. Subscribe to us. Come on. You know you want to. You've been sitting there thinking about it this whole entire episode. It's, <laughs> it's bound to happen. I mean, you might as well do it now. Uh, it's inevitable at it's this just, point. It's just going to happen eventually. Don't don't <laughs> hold back. Don't don't fight it. Come on. You know, we're we're good peoples over here. <laughs> Join us. One of us. One of us. But with that being said, thank you so much again for listening. And we are out.